You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is my interview with the writer and director for Triangle of Sadness, Ruben Osland. So, is this runway casting for a grumpy brand or a smiley brand? So it's a grumpy brand, yeah. Congratulations! Show me that Balenciaga look. Suddenly I'm dressed in something way less expensive. It's H&M, yay! Balenciaga, and H&M, Balenciaga. And H&M! It looks paid for the tickets. Not bad, huh? <laughs> so what do you do? I sell shit. The success of a luxury cruise mainly depends on you. I don't want to hear anybody saying no. It's always, yes sir, yes ma'am! I command you, enjoy the moment. No. 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 <laughs> what? You say no to me? No, no. Oh, so it's yes. It's, yeah, no. Yes. Go in. Yes. <laughs> the saints. Do you think it's possible to wash them? I don't think that's possible, ma'am, because this is a motorized vessel. Yeah. So we don't have any sails. It was sails. Yes. Well then, in that case, we will clean the sails. Yes. Of course. Yes. A Russian capitalist. And an American communist. On a $250 million luxury yacht. The ship is going under. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, not just This is really bad. This is really, really bad. Uh, Ruben, what a pleasure. Thank you uh, so much. I was very, very happy to get a chance to not only uh, meet you earlier this season at the New York Film Festival, but now to be speaking with you after your first Oscar nomination, nominations, actually, for Triangle of Sadness. It's just a real pleasure, and it couldn't have happened to, uh, I think, a better filmmaker. Uh, you really, really deserve it after the quality of work that you've just given us over the years. So congratulations on that, first and foremost. Thank you so much. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, so I want to ask you, first of all, there was that infamous video from that Oscar nomination morning for Force Majeure. I want to know, what was it like this year? What did you do this year? Did you have a camera rolling? <laughs> Uh, yes, we had a camera rolling. We were, the thing was that um, the night before the announcement in Sweden, it was the Swedish award, uh, national award, like the one that is broadcasted in Swedish television. And we were winning some prizes there. So we were very happy. Uh, and we were a group of people that was out late. And then the next day we gathered in, uh, in the restaurant in Stockholm. 
And the, the producer, it's him that always want to shoot or film when we are listening to the announcement. Mm -hmm. We also did for the square. <laughs> uh, then this time, okay, it was like five, five of us from the same production company. And we put a, a, the, the cell phone in the middle in between us on a round table. And we were listening uh, to hear the announcement, you know, like this. And then we were filming the, uh, the reactions. And I was just like, no, we can't film it because you're going to jinx it. Uh, and then he was no no we have to do it so when we got to best script and dolly was not nominated i was hoping that dolly would get a nomination yeah yeah anyway uh and we got a best script nomination i was like wow okay great now it feels that i have delivered what uh, maybe people are expecting a little bit and or hoping for i mean i was super happy uh and then we got to best director and i was like what are you, are you kidding me and everybody around that table is like this they were surprised you know yeah and uh, the best director nomination is fantastic because it's your colleagues that is uh voting for you mm -hmm. and then then when best script came then we had three nom three oscar nominations and this had not happened before in sweden uh so and last time we got the best picture nomination was like 1975 so in sweden wow. this big big thing of course mm -hmm. so, so we were just super super happy that's amazing i love hearing but, that no, but the video is not that fun because it's oh. not so fun <laughs> it's not so fun to watch people when they succeed it's much more interesting when to watch them fail <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's funny to hear you say that because I think that uh, people would, if the video ever does see the light of day, I think people would like to see elation, the joy, the relief, whatever you want to call it, uh, because people are happy for you. There's a lot of people who have seen this movie who were rooting for this movie ever since its world premiere at Cannes, where it won the Palme d'Or, your second Palme d'Or. Like I said, just congratulations all around. You're having an amazing year here, I think. And I, I think that the movie plays very, very well to... A broad audience and I want to know if was it a, a very deliberate decision on your part early on for this to be your first English language speaking film like where did that decision ultimately come from well I think that uh, the three last films that I have done I have had an approach that I wanted to uh, make movies in an environment that I want to spend time in I want to spend time on a ski resort and let's bring the audience into the ski resort and then try to discuss interesting questions and the same thing with the square i want to spend time in in the art world it has some i'd say attractive elements to it and then let's try to discuss some things in in that environment so that have been an idea that i've been dealing with since uh, force mayor mm -hmm. and uh, then when it came to uh, turn of sadness i i knew that it should take place in a fashion world on a luxury yacht and on a deserted island and all of these three environments are basically uh, a place where you speak English. I had a feeling, you know, like the, the our European cinema in some ways have a problem because when we get money from the state, we are economically safe. So we don't have to punch all the way in order to reach the audience. So, and that have developed the European cinema into something that is like you're expert in applying for money, but you're not an expert in order to reach the audience. Mm -hmm. And the American cinema is an expert in reaching the, mo the audience. Because otherwise you will go bankrupt if you don't if you don't manage to do it in the American industry. So I, I had an idea of like there's a combination of the European cinema that is having a tradition of like provoking questions, talking about society, 
not necessarily only look at cinema as something that is entertainment industry, uh, but an art form. I mean, they're part of the American cinema, definitely, that is dealing with this also. But if you just look at the state-founded system and to try to combine it with the approach that the American cinema have that is wild and entertaining and is bringing in the audience. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Yeah, well, I would say that you wildly succeeded. Everyone I know who saw the film at its world premiere at Cannes said it was like a breath of fresh air to experience something as wild and outrageous as your film. And I want to specifically ask about the three-act structure uh, of this movie's screenplay. Was it always intended to be uh, these distinct three parts? Uh, Did that evolve over time? Can you talk me through just how you chose to uh, structure the movie? Because specifically with um, Carl and Yaya, they are the people who are with us throughout all three acts. But then, like you mentioned earlier, Dolly De Leon is such a presence in the third act, and she's more subtle in the the second act. So, like, how did this all just come to be in terms of which character was going to dominate which section? How did you choose to section the movie off? Uh, well, I knew already from the beginning that I wanted the film to go in these three acts and these mm-hmm. three very different environments. And I, I, I knew that I wanted to have the two very strong hierarchies that exist in the fashion world and on the yacht, you know, and then flip that pyramid over when it came to the deserted island. I mean, the deserted and deserted island is used quite many have been used quite many times in in literature and in movies and was in TV shows in order to take away old hierarchies. And now it's about surviving. Yeah. And uh, and I was inspired of a of a Swedish novel uh, that is called The Doomed Island, where there's a group of shipwrecks that have a struggle of surviving on a deserted island, and but when they manage to do it they get a little bit free time over and they decide to draw something on the rock wall. And they decide to draw a lion uh, because there are dangerous lion on this island. And in this novel, it is like that. That's the moment where the true, uh, how to say, equality of being a human being mm-hmm. appears. When we have uh, our basic needs covered and we get the opportunity to express ourselves. Yeah. So that was like the inspiration for putting them on, on the island. And of course, there was a challenge with that because a deserted island is basically almost like restarting the movie from the mm-hmm. over. Yeah. And, and if you have looked two parts of three parts and all of a sudden you have a movie that is restarting uh, from the beginning again, you, you can't have a problem. So you needed someone that could carry that part and give the audience energy and uh, make it interesting, basically. Uh, and uh, so I think that Dolly De Leon was the one that had that on her shoulders when it came to her character, uh, Abigail. Um, so, so I, I, I basically. 
basically know she's going to dominate the last uh, act of the film. Mm-hmm. I knew that Colin Jaya was uh, going to be the first part of the film. And in the in the second part of the film, I wanted to, to focus on people that have succeeded in our society, so to speak. Like people that were the rich ones, the creme de la creme. Yeah. And Colin Jaya had gotten a ticket to that world because of the beauty. And that that's like what the, the aspects of it that I that I enjoyed. Sure, absolutely. Uh, I'm curious to know, not that I would ever think that you've ever been stranded on a desert island before, but that scene, especially between Carl and Yaya with the uh, the check and the experience of meeting people on a cruise or a vacation. Was there anything that drew upon an experience that you had in life to inspire these scenes? I I mean, there's a lot of the scenes in the film that I have a personal relationship to in some way. Mm-hmm. And of course, they have been tweaked. Uh, but um, when it comes to being on a cruise and being on a, on a luxury cruise, I did research on a, a luxury cruise sailing yacht that is called Sea Cloud, and um, there I got the inspiration for the for the seasickness. Mm-hmm. So one night it was a Italian buffet, and you had all these guests, like rich guests, that was going to the Italian buffet, and slowly people were getting more and more silent because they got scared of being seasick. Uh, it was very interesting to follow the how to say, the change of attitude in that room. Uh, uh, and when the first person was vomiting, uh, how the other guests were relating to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it was much more interesting to look at the other guests that were relating to the vomiting person. Then the vomiting in itself, it's not so interesting. But you think you can think of that, you have the, you're trying to have the right fork and the right ni- knife and eat in a very proper way with the right, so to speak. And then you hear someone vomit and you're like, should you look or <laughs> and should you continue eating? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there were some things in that. And also the socializing that happens on these yachts. Yeah, they, the, the yacht crew actually told me that uh, there are three categories of, of people going uh, on a yacht. It's uh, newly wed, overfed, and almost dead. So these are <laughs> the three categories going on a, on a, on a yacht. And there was a lot of o- almost dead people on the yacht where I went. And people were talking, we were talking about like what are what were you working with and and so on. And, and that's where the inspiration came from. Like that all of a sudden you are on a table next to a couple of arms dealers and they are super nice. <laughs> right. I love that. Uh going to the yacht sequence here, I, I want to know how you achieved the visual of the rocking of the ship. Did you have the camera on a specific type of rig? Was that something that was achieved in post-production with editing? How, how did you achieve that swaying of the ship? Well, the thing was that um, I have a great set designer, Josephine Osbari, that I've been working with now since Force Mayor. And she is a person that is not afraid of any challenge. And uh, in the beginning of the process of Trial of Sadness, I asked her, is it possible to build... At the interior of a luxury yacht on a gimbal, so we can rock it, so we mm-hmm. can simulate the storm. And she's like, "Yes." She didn't, you know, not <laughs> one second. She was waiting to, to 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 answer that question. So she took on that challenge, and she did a fantastic job, actually. Because if you look at the details of how uh, that interior is built, it's really, really impressive. Yeah, she built the dining room. She built uh, a corridor. She built a couple of the cabins. We actually built uh, also the command bridge, but 
that scene was cut away. And we built it on a gimbal where we could rock it 20 degrees. Wow. As much so the furniture started to slide in the room. Yeah. And uh, what happened was that I had an idea of shooting the, those scenes with a fixed camera. Mm-hmm. I wanted the camera to follow the room, but I wanted to show that the bodies of the people were moving rather yes. than the camera. And uh, we spent 13 days on this rocking set. And people, people, you know, people were seasick in the crew, actually. I was going to say, people must have gotten sick on set. <laughs> so they had to eat seasick pills. And uh, not all of us, but um, some of us. And uh, then when I was sitting down and editing this, this sequence, it actually took me almost like four or five months to edit that sequence. Uh, I, I was editing other things parallel, of course. But, but in order to get the right, like, curve and dynamics when it comes yeah. to how the chaos is like evolving but i didn't get the feeling of the rocking you know even even if you are like even if it's rocking that much mm-hmm. as an audience you don't 100% see in the bodies how much the people are are leaning and rocking so i started to turn the image digitally Mm-hmm. So I in a little bit, and I started to simulate the rocking also with with the movement of the of the camera, so to speak. So uh, I actually had to do that, even if I didn't plan that from the beginning. And I imagine though that also has to kind of help with matching cuts for the edit too, right? If something doesn't line up timing wise, you can do that to kind of fix it, right? Yeah, exactly. If you if you, but it was also kind of strange because if you shoot a dialogue scene between us here mm-hmm. and the room is rocking like this for me then it's rocking like that for you so when you cut it feels like strange yeah in, in some way it feels strange mm-hmm. so it doesn't really 100% help you with uh, uh with the cutting in that way what what i could though do though is like when you're when you have a when the boat is going down and it's like bam hitting the hitting a wave or something like that then i could shake the image and then you can go over to another cut. Sorry, now I have to open the door again. <laughs> it's okay. No, by all means. Uh, sorry, this time it was no one here. <laughs> a good dramaturgy in this uh, to key, to include this in. <laughs> all well and good. Um, so my last question here before we wrap up is: the end of the movie. I have talked to a lot of people about the final image of Carl running through the foliage, and. Lots of people have different interpretations as to what's he wanting running towards, uh, what's his intention. Has he already seen what has happened between uh, Abigail and Yaya, played fantastically by Charlie Dean, by the way, and may she rest in peace. Uh, but I want to know from your perspective, was it meant to be ambiguous or did you always have intentionality behind what Carl is running towards at the end of the movie okay now i'm going to tell you something that maybe is something that you shouldn't tell as a as a filmmaker because um but i do it because i think that your listeners are interested in filmmaking on a different level sure and if i think about the 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 directors that i really have meant a lot to me and have uh, that i have been inspired of they very often have an element that is not 100% explained in a way that the audience have to process it afterwards and that you have to come back to it. Yeah, I think Michael Hanek is probably the, 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 the great old master of these kind of endings. And uh, uh, I think it's important to have an element that don't make it too easy for the audience to just like go like that and yeah, yeah. now we can leave that behind. 
this is maybe a like, little bit of European tradition, I guess, because in, I, I, in my experience, you try to avoid this kind of ambiguity in, in, in American movies. So I wanted to have a scene where it's a little bit open for interpretation. Okay. And I have heard very, very many uh, suggestions of what this means. And the one that knows the right answer will get a one million Swedish kroners. For, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but one, one, some, someone said to me, he's running for his male identity. And I felt, wow, okay, that is, that is a good interpretation. And if I look at the character of Carl, you know, he is struggling so much with finding a role through the film. Mm-hmm. And so that answer, I, 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 I thought, okay, I, I, I like that answer. Yeah, I have my own feelings on what I think it means, too. And I do like that. I've seen the film now four times. And every time I watch it, I always think of it from a different perspective uh, to try and see if uh, my reading of the film changes. And if so, how? And that's how I love interacting with this uh, piece of work that you've given us here of Triangle of Sadness. Uh, Ruben, once again, as I started the show, I'll end the show by saying it's a pleasure. It's an honor. I am very, very happy for you uh, and for everyone who worked on this movie. I think it's a wonderful uh, tribute also to Charlby, uh, who I'm sure would have loved uh, the success uh, of this movie. Um, so thank you once again for the time here. Thank you so much. Absolutely. You have a good rest of your day. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with the writer and director for Triangle of Sadness, Ruben Osland, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Triangle of Sadness is nominated for three Academy Awards and is up for your consideration for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum per month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we will see you all next time. Christina Yerling Biro, host of the podcast Pop Culture Confidential. Join me as I go way behind the scenes with some of the most influential people in entertainment and media. Hear actors such as Succession's Brian Cox talk about his favorite characters to play. There always has to be a mystery. The audience have to be in a situation where they want to know what's going on. Meet studio execs like Pixar chief Pete Docter and learn his secret on how he makes us cry. Emotion is our first language. And so many others who are defining popular culture, from Obama speechwriter David Litt to Top Chef host Padma Lakshmi. We don't often think about food politically or we don't want to, but it really is. Join me. Search for Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts.